This week on Roundtable, what Elon Musk's potential takeover of Twitter means for Black Twitter. An investigation finds disparities in Park and Rec Center funding that favors high-income areas, and changes in how San Diego enforces its rules on living in vehicles. I'm Matt Hoffman, and the KPBS Roundtable starts now. Long ago, when the public square was the only place to share news, events, and happenings, people were drawn to it. Living in community with others was the route to understanding each other and the world around us. The public square has changed dramatically, but our need to learn and understand one another has it. This is Port of Entry. The Parker Edison Project. Listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. Thank you for listening to KPBS Podcast and for being part of our region's virtual public square, where you learn not only about the headlines of the day, but about culture, music, and the issues that are important to all of us. Help keep the virtual square alive and well. Support podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. And thanks again. Welcome to our discussion of some of the week's top stories. I'm Matt Hoffman, and joining me this week on the KPBS Roundtable are Los Angeles Times columnist Erica D. Smith, reporter Alexis Rivas from NBC7 San Diego, and Voice of San Diego reporter Lisa Halverstadt. Earlier this week, billionaire entrepreneur Elon Musk bought Twitter for $44 billion, though the deal still needs final approval from regulators. The announcement is sparking strong reactions from across the political spectrum. Some are celebrating the move, while others are saying they will leave the platform and never come back. But this digital town square, as Musk referred to the social network soon after the announcement, has also become a vital virtual space for black life and culture. It's a place known as Black Twitter. Erica D. Smith's latest column in the Los Angeles Times reflects on Black Twitter's influence while also raising concerns about its future with Twitter's new owner. Erica, welcome to Roundtable. Thanks for having me on. Great to have you here. So for those who are unfamiliar, what is Black Twitter and why is it important? Yeah, so it's kind of this loosely defined community of people that have built kind of bonds online around activism, you know, humor, outrage at times. You know, it's it's important because it's kind of been the core creativity for Twitter. It's, you know, a lot of the memes and, and gifts that we all share to to comment on things if we're on Twitter come from Black Twitter originally, that kind of sense of humor. But it's also been a, a hub of social change. I mean, a lot of the the major maybe issues and movements that have come out of Black life have really started on Twitter with hashtags, Black Lives Matter being among them. So it's kind of this multifaceted community that has grown over time as Twitter has grown. And you sort of start your column by raising concerns with the owner of Tesla taking the helm of Twitter now, particularly as it relates to Black Twitter. What are you worried about there? Well, I mean, I think a lot, there's a lot of worries with Elon Musk. I mean, you know, love him or hate him, most people agree he's controversial. He's the world's richest man. Um, he's also one of the, the founders of Tesla. And right now, uh, he's his company, Tesla, is being sued by the state of California on behalf of thousands of workers over um, alleged racial discrimination at his plant in, in Fremont. The company has already been forced to pay millions to at least one Black employee for similar issues. And he's also just said some questionable things about COVID vaccines and some other issues online over the years, mostly uh, through Twitter, 
And so I think there's just a little, a lot of concern about who this guy is, how he's going to run this company and what his aims are. And I think that gets uh, reverberated through black Twitter because they are so kind of attuned to who he has been as a business person. And we've seen Elon Musk make comments advocating for a more hands-off approach for the policing of content on Twitter, sort of citing the importance of free speech. Do you agree with that approach or, or that line of thought? No, I mean, I think that, you know, I'm all as a journalist, I'm all, you know, for free speech, but I also recognize that there are, you know, there's always been limits to free speech and there's always been consequences to free speech. I mean, we can't go run into a movie theater and shout fire inside a, you know, a stampede and two people get killed and there's no repercussions for that, you know, and also, you know, it's important to remember that Twitter is a private company. I mean, it's publicly traded now, but uh, assuming the deal does go through, it will be privately held under Musk. I mean, there's no responsibility under the, uh, under the first amendment to allow that. And so while free speech sounds great in theory, we've also seen the repercussions of what that looks like. We see conspiracy theories. We see, you know, lots of just lies and falsehoods and just kind of just nasty comment that makes people feel like just kind of awful. And frankly, they're just have been bad for business for Twitter. So when he talks about free speech, I think there's a, a big gap between what he's saying and what the reality of what that looks like. And you referred to this a little bit earlier, but what are some of the most memorable, you know, hashtags and ultimately movements that have come out of Black Twitter? Well, I think the most obvious one is Black Lives Matter. I mean, we saw that, you know, in 2020 after um, the murder of George Floyd in, in Minneapolis, um, where people were shouting that it's now we have Black Lives Matter plazas all over the country, including in Washington, D.C. That's a hashtag that started you know, on Twitter. I think another one is Oscar So White that's, you know, relevant to us, those of us here in Southern California, in terms of pointing out the fact, the lack of diversity in Hollywood and and really pushing for some change there that we've started to see. Um, another one on that police brutality one would be I Can't Breathe, which again came up after George Floyd, but was also around before that. And so there's, and there's a number of, you know, people who have been killed by police, their names have become hashtags. That's a thing. Um, and I think more on the positive side, I think there's, you know, Black Girl Magic is the one that gets thrown around a lot, particularly to, as, as a way of kind of like bolstering and talking about the beauty of Blackness in a society that doesn't always value that. So Erica, we know that Elon Musk's, his Twitter takeover, it's happening. Do you think that it marks the end of Black Twitter or do you hope that it can continue, you know, either on Twitter or maybe somewhere else? I mean, I think at the very least, it's going to change. I do think it's probably going to end in the ways that we've known it in the past. I don't think you're going to see as many Black users, particularly prominent Black users, spending as much time on the platform and making it a central kind of locale for to create change. I just don't think that there's a trust in the ownership, particularly once the company becomes private. You know, I do think that, you know, Black people will remain on Twitter. I mean, I don't plan on deleting my account anytime soon, but I just think that the notion of what it has been and kind of the parts of Twitter will change. And I think that will definitely be the case if you know, Twitter under Elon Musk does kind of get rid of some of these content moderation that has been in, put into place, even if it's not the greatest now. But if you say return some of the more controversial right leaning voices to the platform, I do think that's going to change the, what Twitter is and what it looks like and what it does. Billionaire ownership of major media entities, it's nothing new. Amazon's founder, Jeff Bezos, he owns the Washington Post, Rupert Murdoch's News Corp. They own the Wall Street Journal, among a lot of other publications. I'm curious, do you see Elon Musk buying Twitter in the same light, or is this different for you? Um, I think it's very different. I mean, it's noted the LA Times is owned by a billionaire, as is the San Diego Union Tribune. But, you know, news organizations, newspapers, news outlets are a very different creature than Twitter. I mean, 
any news organization, no matter how big or small, it's hired journalists. There's a limited number of us who are hired to basically report and put out news. And if we report it badly, if if we defame somebody, if we libel somebody, there are consequences to that as a company. Twitter, on the other hand, is this massive international platform where anybody can say anything that they want at any given time, for the most part. There are no checks and balances. And I think the other thing that's different about Twitter is Twitter can be a news, it can kind of start a news source of its own. I mean, we've seen situations where a rumor has started on Twitter or online and it's caused real world consequences. I mean, there's January 6th, but there's also smaller things like here in Los Angeles a few weeks ago, there's a rumor that was floating around online that people could get homeless vouchers if they came to a specific place at a specific time. Hundreds of people showed up, caused all sorts of chaos. That was something that was created online that wasn't true, but it had real world consequences, but there was no accountability for who actually put that out there. So I think they're very different things. So you said that you don't plan on leaving, but have you heard of people who are leaving Twitter this week as a result of Musk buying it? And if you have, where are they going? You know, I don't know where people are going or if they're going anywhere. I frankly just think this is kind of an adjustment period for people. I think that, you know, we've all heard that Elon Musk was going to potentially buy Twitter for the last few days, but it, you know, in some ways it kind of came across all of a sudden. Um, So I think people are trying to decide what they're going to do, but I definitely think there is this at least small, if not growing exodus uh, of Twitter from Black people. I see it, you know, in some of the more prominent people who are on Twitter that are talking about that we're leaving. So, and that's been true since uh, Elon first floated the idea of actually buying the company, um, what, 10, 12 days ago. Well, sort of along those lines, do you think that some people, you know, they might be jumping to conclusions here before this takeover actually happens? Oh, I'm sure. I mean, I think that's just the nature of people, particularly for the, the number of users that are here on Twitter. I mean, it could be that, you know, nothing really changes with the platform. Maybe the content moderation stays the same. I think beyond the the surface level changes of how we use the platform, I do think there's also just going to be this level of trust that people don't trust Elon Musk. Um, and that's harder to quantify and, and how that will or will not push people away from the platform. So that's really, I think, one of the things we're going to have to watch. I don't think there's going to be this like immediate, you know, by the end of the week, everybody's gone. But I do think there is going to be this kind of trickle away from it. And yeah, I know you obviously don't have a crystal ball here, but do you have hope about the future of Black Twitter, you know, even if Musk takes over ownership of Twitter? I don't know if it's hope. I I think that, you know, in the history of technology, anything else, I mean, I think that Black people, like all people, have found ways to use that technology in the best way possible. I mean, I think about during early in the pandemic, how, you know, one Black DJ in particular decided to create kind of a dance party when we were all stuck in the house. And that became Versus, which is now sponsored by Apple and a number of other companies. I think there's a way of bending the technology to the way the needs that we have. And I think that Black people, for whatever reason, have been really good at that over the years. And so whether it's Twitter, whether it's Instagram, whether it's TikTok, whether it's, you know, some other yet to be invented platform, I'm sure people will migrate to something else. um, And that will be the new thing until it's not. And then we'll go do something else. So I don't know. It's hard to tell, but I think there will be some changes afoot. I've been speaking with Los Angeles Times columnist Erica D. Smith. You can read her latest column about Elon Musk and Twitter at latimes.com. And Erica, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me on. 
A recent audit revealed huge gaps in the way City of San Diego parks and recreation centers are funded. Parks in wealthier neighborhoods receive up to 13 times more funding compared to lower income neighborhoods. San Diego City Council member Vivian Moreno says it's just not right. The city of San Diego has been saying that we're one San Diego. Well, guess what? This audit showed that no, we're not. We're two San Diegos. Now the city and the mayor are trying to do something about the inequity gap. Joining us for more on this is NBC7 investigative reporter Alexis Rivas. She's been following the money here. Welcome to Roundtable, Alexis. Thanks for having me, Matt. Great to have you here. So this audit of the city's Parks and Recs Department, it was published earlier in the year. What disparities did that report find? There's some pretty big ones. You're not used to seeing numbers, actually, at least I'm not, that are that large when you're looking at disparity. 47%, that's how much more funding parks, generally speaking, north of the eight were getting than parks south of the eight. And it's it's interesting. You can see it almost when we visualize the, it into bar graphs, the audit into the park spending, split all of these park and rec centers into two groups. Group one was the north half of the city and group two is the south half of the city. And it does really kind of follow the line of kind of interstate eight. When you see it broken down kind of into like an Excel sheet, it's even wilder. You you have instances where there's parks that are getting $650,000 plus per year in spending. And then there's rec centers that are getting 30,000. So it, it is pretty wild to see just how far the range can be. And yeah, you mentioned those graphics. You have some of them in your story that clearly show that the northern part of the city gets a lot more funding than the south. Do we know generally why that is? A lot of it is programming. So if you'll go to park and rec centers in the north part of the city, you'll see there's a lot of like after school programs, karate classes, maybe senior programming, and that can be exercise, it can be arts and crafts, it can be yoga. It can, all of these things cost money. So I think it's, you know, at least when I started doing the story, I was thinking, okay, well, maybe there's fancier playground equipment or there's more fields. Yeah, there's some of that, but a huge part of it too is just programming and services they're providing for the community as well. And those programs and services just aren't offered in the South Bay? No, not nearly as much. I mean, if you, and the spending breaks down that way too. Uh, there's like double the amount. We're talking about over 3,000 programs were offered north of the eight. Uh, and we're talking about things like a youth sports clinic or teaching kids to play volleyball, for example. I think it was less than half that. It was 1,500 something south of the eight. And do we know what prompted this audit or, or, or this review of the city's parks and recs? Yes, it was. It was Councilwoman Vivian Moreno. And she says she just had a a gut feeling. Uh, At the time that she called for it, she was chair of the audit committee. She just had this feeling that there wasn't as much going on north of the eight. I think when I talked to her, you know, kind of before interview, she's like, you know, they had watercolor painting. We don't have that (laughs) at the rec center down where I live. So she asked for this audit to be done. And then when it wound up showing that gut feeling had a lot of truth behind it. So you actually went out to some of these parks to see the inequities firsthand. What did you find out there? I think the first thing that we noticed is that a lot of the park and rec centers that we were just visiting at the south part of the eight, one, you didn't see people using them. Um, And that could have been, in some cases, they were locked and only open at select times of the week for senior programming. None of them are closed. But Stockton was gated and completely locked and is only available for senior programming right now. So I wouldn't say it's completely open at the moment. So just, I think 
less facilities or facilities that just weren't usable were more likely to be found. Now, I went to a park and rec center up in La Jolla that had, it was the one that had over $650,000 in spending. And it wasn't just this, you know, beautiful playground and softball fields and dog park and people were really out there using it. It was also, you could see all these posters lining a little fence telling you about all of the school programs and sports programs that are available to you as well. So yeah, it just totally different environments. You also spoke with some residents while you were out there. What are you hearing from people who have these nicer facilities versus those who maybe don't? Yeah, I wasn't sure what to expect with that, you know, especially north of the eight, because I, they're really benefiting from having all of this attention and money and resources. But everyone was pretty much in agreement here that everyone should have the same amount of opportunities and same amount of um, investment in park and rec centers. It's important. Um, It's not just for kids, but also for adults living in every neighborhood. These kind of spaces are really valued. Part of this audit included a lot of recommendations to fix this funding inequality. You spoke to the city's parks and rec manager. Have they committed to making those changes? Oh yeah. He's very excited. He was, I was almost taken aback by how, willing the park and rec director was to not only do our interview, but just address this up front. It was pretty clear in saying, you know, we, we sort of suspected it ourselves that this was going on for a long time. And this is the most amount of money now that has ever been put into addressing it. So this is kind of an exciting time for them, which kind of speaks to how we got here to begin with. A lot of these park and rec centers, the programming, the services, everything that's going into them wasn't decided by one person or even a central department. This was really split up into a bunch of these regional nonprofits that were deciding for each single rec center what they were going to get. And what wound up just happening is a lot of these little nonprofit groups were just asking for more in the north part of the city. So they were getting a lot more. Um, And it wasn't until things changed organizationally that the city sort of started to get the hunch that something was going on here. And it was in 2018 um, that that happened. But this had been going on for about 40 years before that. So it didn't happen overnight. And I think because of the audit, it kind of gave the platform and the attention to the issue to motivate the mayor to put more funding into this. And so we're going to see a lot of changes at park and rec centers very soon. Yeah. And, you know, earlier you had mentioned, you know, council member Vivian Moreno, she said she had this gut feeling that there were these big disparities here. You mentioned the city's parks manager. They said that they thought there was the same. If this audit never happened, do you get the sense that that these changes would be happening or that we would just still be exactly where we were before? The audit, I think, came at just the right time. You know, so I think the first time it was presented before council was either last month or the month right before. And it was just in the Public Safety um, Livable Neighborhoods Committee. Then it was before the full council, which was just before the mayor announced his proposed budget, which has $1.2 million specifically to address this inequity. So I think it absolutely was a motivating factor in bringing attention to the issue, which could then bring the funding necessary to change it without that funding. It might be different. This funding not only allows for more programs and services to be provided south of the eight, it doesn't take away from north of the eight. I think that's a really important thing to mention, too, is we asked, you know, does this mean that the park and rec centers that have been enjoying this abundance of funding will suddenly have to kind of strip back some of the clinics or programs that they offer? And the answer is no. The plan is not to do any of that, but simply to add where there hasn't been for a long time. And so we know that there are changes coming to the Parks and Recs Department, but since this audit was released this year, have we seen any tangible changes yet? 
Yeah, we noticed it just while reporting on our story. The Presidio Rec Center, yeah, okay, so the basketball court was taped off because someone had graffiti on it and they had to repaint it. And while there weren't a lot of families there because there wasn't a playground, we did see a poster for a volleyball clinic. I saw another poster for a basketball clinic. A park and rec staff member kind of saw our camera and came out to check out what was going on. And I asked him about it. And he said, those are new. Those those were actually put up about a week before we were out there looking for interviews. So he said that there's a big push to make this more of a family-oriented rec center. I have a feeling it's because of the audit. So hopefully some of the centers are already offering more programming, not just the Presidio Park and Rec Center. So I think change has started. I've been speaking with Alexis Rivas. She's an investigative reporter at NBC7. And Alexis, thanks so much for your time. Thanks again for having me, Matt. Hello, podcast listener. Full disclosure, I'm going to make some assumptions about you. This probably isn't the only podcast you enjoy. Blink if I'm right. It's probably not the only thing you watch or listen to on KPBS either. If I'm right about that, then I'm guessing you make it a point to check in on a regular basis to see what's new, take in the latest and greatest, and then you go back to your daily life until we happily come together again. We're sort of like a virtual buffet. When you're hungry for information and entertainment, you go to KPBS and want to eat, uh, consume all you can, right? Well, you should know that when you become a member of KPBS, You're keeping the entire TV, radio, and online trays full of fresh ideas, like the tasty podcast you're enjoying right now. Help feed your appetite for KPBS. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. Thank you. San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria called homelessness his highest priority at his State of the City speech. Here's more of what he had to say on the issue during his remarks in January. During my first year in office, I have deployed a more compassionate, person-centered approach to our homeless residents, offering them shelter and services, while also carrying out our responsibility to enforce our city laws. But an investigation from Voice of San Diego found that the city has stopped enforcing laws relating to people living in their vehicles. Reporter Lisa Halverstadt from Voice of San Diego joins me now to talk about what she found out. Welcome back to Roundtable, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here as always. So you wrote along with your co-author, Jacob McWinney, that the city has stopped writing tickets for people living in their vehicles, and they haven't done it since the start of the year. We know that this was a big effort under the previous mayor, Kevin Faulkner. What did city officials say when you reached out to them about the changes here? So when I reached out to the city, they acknowledged that they have stopped enforcing this ordinance known as the Vehicle Habitation Ordinance during the pandemic, and they chose not to restart the ticketing again due to an ongoing class action lawsuit. That lawsuit was filed in 2017 and has been challenging enforcement that would affect people that are living in RVs, vans, and other kinds of vehicles. Can you describe what these vehicle habitation citations actually are and sort of what their purpose is? Yeah, so the city's 2019 vehicle habitation ordinance bans sleeping in your vehicle overnight on a city street or on a public property or from staying in a vehicle if you're within 500 feet of a home or school at any hour. If the ticket is written like an infraction, it would cost at least $280 once you incorporate court fees. I think it's also important to mention that before the pandemic, Vehicles could sometimes be impounded as a result of these sorts of violations. But as I understand, that's now been on hold um, since April 2020, at least for specifically vehicle habitation. 
And now you write that we're back in the courts again here. What is this lawsuit doing again to maybe, you know, influence some of these decisions here? Well, the city acknowledged that it decided not to resume enforcement because of this ongoing lawsuit. But I really couldn't get clarity on exactly when the city decided to stop enforcing this. What I could see from the data is that the last ticket that the city gave for vehicle habitation was December 31st. It seemed like the ticketing slowed down a bit starting around uh, September, but the city really wasn't willing to provide that clarity. I do think it would be really logical to assume, obviously, that the city thought that continuing this enforcement might not be helpful to their legal defense. And when we say the city here, do we know if this decision, did it come from the mayor's office, the police department, or did they give you any clarity there? So interestingly, the city attorney's office pointed me to the mayor and the city council when I asked them why this enforcement had stopped. The mayor does direct city departments, including the police department. So it seems likely that his department ordered this, um, but the city didn't fully clarify that with me when I asked. I think it's worthwhile to note that often when there is litigation, um, it's a little bit harder sometimes for me to get clear answers on on what happened and, and when and why. You write that during this time that the city has stopped citing vehicle dwellers, that they've become increasingly visible again, especially in beach communities like Ocean Beach. Has there been an increase of complaints in those areas? And do we know if the communities have been reacting in any way? Yes, uh, more San Diegans uh, are noticing and in some cases complaining about an uptick in vehicles, for example, along Pacific Highway. Um, in the Midway Old Town area and Rob Field and Ocean Beach is another hub. But I don't think that the increasing visibility is simply because enforcement of this ordinance has stopped. When people lose their housing, their vehicles are often the first place that they fall into if they don't have a place to stay, say on a friend's couch. So this is likely a sign that more people are falling into homelessness. You mentioned that City Council President Sean Elo Rivera, he's been supportive of finding alternative ways, flexible ways to have people living safely in the city. He cites his own experience of living in a vehicle for a short period of time. Uh, But where does Mayor Todd Gloria stand on this whole issue? Well, first, let's talk briefly about Sean Elo Rivera. He lived in his SUV for a stint when he was in law school and had a conversation with him last week. He told me it's made him a lot more interested in finding solutions Um, that would make folks who live in vehicles less concerned about getting tickets or, you know, getting the things that they need, such as a shower every day. Um, He also told me that that experience really helped him understand that traditional shelters or services that aren't convenient or might be seen as a step down for people that are, you know, in a vehicle living in their own space might not be ideal. As far as Mayor Gloria goes, he is a big proponent um, of what they call safe parking lots. The city has a handful of these where people can park without fear of tickets. They can be connected with services, ideally housing. The city did tell me that Mayor Gloria recently directed staff to look at whether some of the city's safe parking lots, which are operated by Jewish Family Service, could be open 24 hours to lessen that need for people to move. And Lisa, do we know when this lawsuit is going to be resolved here? I would say it's all still to be determined. I wouldn't expect, obviously, that enforcement would resume until after this trial. And for now, the players involved in this lawsuit are expecting that that trial could be scheduled later this year. 
Lisa Halverstadt is a reporter with Voice of San Diego. You can read her piece on San Diego's change on enforcing people living in vehicles at voiceofsandiego.org. And Lisa, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. That wraps up this week's edition of the KPBS Roundtable, and I'd like to thank our guests this week, Erica D. Smith from the Los Angeles Times, NBC7 investigative reporter Alexis Rivas, and Lisa Halverstadt from Voice of San Diego. If you missed any part of our show, you can listen anytime on the KPBS Roundtable podcast. I'm Matt Hoffman. Thanks so much for being here with us, and join us next week on Roundtable. Roundtable.